You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined by Sexy Irish Sean. Rick is not a part of our podcast this time because he is sleeping, and we're recording way too early in the morning for him right now because time zones. Today, we're going to be talking about some work that Sean did analyzing some of our live Kickstarter campaign ads. Um, We have lots of data and numbers and things like that. We analyzed nine live Kickstarter campaigns. Ten. Oh, ten. Yes. And we wanted to figure out the breakdown was between like the low, mid, and high pledge tiers, the average pledge amount, the number of backers, how many backers that we were able to bring them and you know other numbers like that what what the return on investment was for ads and and that sort of thing and we have some really interesting conclusions and so that's what we're going to talk about this uh this time so if numbers scare you feel free to get out but i think that you'll enjoy this one we are the crowdfunding nerds who are going to get all nerdy crunch some numbers go into the meta of the the industry (laughs) yes all right, so let's do this. Sean, you want to frame our conversation, the, the work that you did, kind of share what what it was? Sure. So we had a client who asked, based on our previous clients, could I make a prediction on where they are currently and sort of how much do we theorize that they're going to raise? So I was like, I'm going to have to get back to you because I'm, that means I'm going to have to crunch a lot of numbers <laughs> to to work out that. So that basically started at, are they live in their Kickstarter campaign at this time? No, or no, they're, they're coming up to it. So they they, they want to know, depending basically depending relative to our previous clients, where where do they fit on the scale, and how much longer do they need to do some pre marketing to to reach their to reach their fund goal, which they're hoping to achieve. Mm-hmm. So one thing I, I will say is that out of these ten campaigns, we ran the live ads for all of them. So they didn't just do we didn't just do pre marketing for them. We also did their live Kickstarter ads, ran ads during their campaigns. All of these campaigns funded, and these are all within uh, this last year, pretty much. Uh, some of them might have been um, late last year, but um, so based- when you say this last year, you're talking about like the last four months. Cool. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So another thing is that we because. This is a relatively small sample size. It's only 10 projects. So take this with a pinch of salt. Some of these ranged from super successful, like you're talking over 4,000 backers. And then some were uh, marginally successful, like 500 backers. So they range, they, there's, a, there's quite a spectrum here, even in these 10. So you probably need, I would say, more projects to have something a bit more thorough. But I think it will give us a, a, a talking point and also a general understanding. But another thing we have to t- talk about is uh, logic. <laughs> it's another thing. So in yep. logic, there's this uh, fallacy. Yeah, the, it's called the problem of induction. So the, the problem of induction is that we cannot use past events to make future predictions. It doesn't necessarily follow. So for example, you can say, well, I've never been struck by lightning before in the past. Therefore, I will never be struck by lightning in the future. Doesn't necessarily follow. You could still be struck by lightning. So just because these numbers we're about to show you happened to projects in the past doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have the same story. So you have to keep that in right. mind. 
whilst we do this, that just because we are using induction, we're saying, well, there's a strong possibility that these numbers will also relate to your project, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it will relate to your project. So that has to be kept in mind. I, what I, I think the technical terms would be correlation. So we're looking for correlations and, you know, we have this theory that we operate most of our, well, all of our campaigns off of, which is the virtuous cycle. We pound the virtuous cycle as a concept really hard because we, we believe TM. that. Yeah. <laughs> TM, virtuous cycle, TM, <laughs> patent pending. So th the idea is that we have run at this point, almost a hundred Kickstarter and GameFound campaigns combined. And in all of our campaigns, the vast majority of them used the virtuous cycle concept. Some of them used modified versions of the virtuous cycle. Like when we ran the Skyrim campaign, we didn't really create a Facebook group and populate that. We used the game found comments page as the place where people would engage and that sort of thing. But there are, but the vast majority of, of cases used the virtuous cycle and I can't say that the virtuous cycle is beyond a theory yet because it's still just a theory. This, this, this virtuous cycle is a, um, it's not proven to work beyond, I mean, under all circumstances, right? I mean, even technically the law of gravity is still just a theory. If we find something that a case where the gravity doesn't work the same way, um, the idea behind this theory is that we have seen high levels of correlation between having a landing page and uh, let's just say like simply an email list and overfunding. Like if you fill your email list with tons and tons of excited, engaged emails, it would make sense that you would fund, you know, on the first day, you'd be more likely, but I couldn't guarantee you that if you got 5,000 emails that you would fund on the first day, it's, it's possible. I would say it's more likely if you had 5,000 emails versus let's say no emails that you would fund on the first day. But I can't guarantee you that if you had acquired 5,000 emails that you would fund, that would be what that, that, that fallacy that Sean was talking about, the philosophy of, of an induction. If I have 5,000 emails, I will be guaranteed to fund is not necessarily a guarantee. It's highly correlated. If you do it right, I mean, it's a, it's as much a guarantee as I can, you know, think of, uh, but it's not a, an actual guarantee. So in, when you're trying to prove something or present an argument, there's two types of reasoning. You have induction and deduction. We're dealing in the realm of induction where we're trying to present a case and the case is either going to be strong or weak. So we're going to say there's a, or as we said, a correlation, there's a high correlation or there's a strong possibility that by doing this, this will happen. There's a strong case for it. Deduction is either true or false. So this is not the arena that we're dealing in. So deduction would be like water boiling at 100 degrees Celsius. I don't know what it is in Fahrenheit at sea level. Like that is true or false. And you can do a test in real time and you can work that out. That's not the arena of reasoning that we're dealing with. We're dealing with induction. So you have to take all of this with a grain of salt. And that's basically our point. Right. And that's really kind of why our podcast exists is because we felt like there are so many things to talk about that you can't know for certain. I mean, everybody that is, you know, has a crowdfunding campaign, we're all kind of trying to figure out the best way to market to, in essence, give our project the best possibilities that, that, that we, that are within our control 
um, the you know any any knob or lever within our control as as a crowdfunding creator, those are things we want to make sure we pull in the right order and you know, and the right levers and knobs, so that it gives our project the best possibility possible chance of success of its greatest potential. So, you know, in in this, it's really a moving target. Like, there's no tried and true formula that will work every time that you can just blueprint to every project. The the factors, there are so many factors to consider, not even just, I mean, world factors with uh, trends changing rapidly because of, you know, the whole coronavirus thing or whatever, like just, you know, not, or, or shipping, not factoring any of that in each individual project is so varied and so nuanced. Your backers, your, your fans, are of are different humans so uh, it adds quite a lot of variance another thing i'd say is you know, for every project we have the same process we have the same formula that we rinse and repeat where we set up your landing page that some of the terminology we use in our ads so on and so forth but what what off what we can't control is the individual creators hustle like their individual hustle how how active are they in doing organic marketing? How diligent are they with really refining the numbers of the manufacturing? These are things which we, we can't control. And they do have a large part to play with the success of a campaign. In a lot of ways, we've we've experienced a lot of success with our, our clients, but some of it, we, we can't attribute to our process. A lot of it is actually the individual yeah. themselves. They've put in the work. They have committed a great deal of time and energy in getting their projects to where they are. And again, this isn't, we've had lots of clients, you've put in a lot of energy, lots of time still haven't funded. So it's not a, it doesn't mean that if you don't do that, you're not going to fund. It's more of a hygiene factor, but it certainly does have a large part in the success of the campaign. It's just the individual hustle of the creator themselves. There, So there is the creator's hustle and, you know, which is the amount of work and result producing activities that that individual creator is going to is going to do that is huge i i personally am of the belief that you can guarantee your project's funding if you hustle long enough and produce that you know i i call them result producing activities if you do result producing activities for long enough um you build your email list you fill you know that list with excited people you communicate with them and so on and so forth you're i believe that any project can fund we call the, the creator's hustle an X factor. Another X factor is the actual product itself. So certain mm -hmm. products are going to have more appeal than others. If, for example, you create a party game and bring that to Kickstarter, you're not going to get 50 cents a lead, you know, in, in your in your ads. I mean, it's gonna it's gonna be more expensive to get people interested in a lightweight party game. Then it will be this, you know, an epic fantasy dungeon crawl board game with a heavy theme that people can really sink their teeth into. I think that that's one of those things that we can't really control the type of project, the, the level of interest that people are going to have in the actual product itself. Those types of things are outside of our control as a marketing agency and really kind of up to our client as uh, uh it's totally fine though sorry um, I mean, talking about things you can't control child right. barged in the room <laughs> that's all right <laughs> we should keep that in the podcast 
the demand for the product is something that is far outside our control. And you know, the the truth is that when whenever we vet a client to come into our agency to work with us, if somebody has a board game or video game or whatever and and they're launching, the first thing that we do is we look at that product to say, is this something that we believe people will want on Kickstarter? Because Kickstarter has a, a typical type of customer and if your product appeals to that customer, then they tend to be a little bit more heavy. They're more, you know, heavy um, is probably the wrong word. They're, they tend to be a little bit, they're into more crunchy, highly thematic, epic games. And the more that your game can appeal to that type of gamer, the higher I think your ceiling is. There are also other types of games that will be more like they will have a really high appeal to one particular demographic of people that have like we were talking uh, to a client yesterday that has a game all about cats and it's it's a game about bringing your cat to the vet and the cat is uh is going to I don't want to reveal the name of the game because it's it's far off from from marketing and whatnot but and so it just appeals so much to cat lovers and whatnot that it almost reminds me of exploding kittens in in a way, and there's a market for that because not not because people are necessary and it is actually a little bit of a heavier, well, I'll say like a gateway level or above type game. So it has a little bit more strategy and other things like that. It's just the theme is so interesting to the right people. I think games like that can fund very well as well, but. There are certain games, you know, we've done ads for companies and we will actually sometimes make a recommendation that they should not go to Kickstarter. We cannot generate enough interest in ads. And so it doesn't make sense to pay us and it doesn't make sense to pay more than than you should to find out that your product is not desired. But, you know, and we've had some clients agree with us. And, you know, the, they might need to retheme their game or they might need to, you know, work some bugs out of the actual playing of the game or, or you know, the, the, the in-game development. When we're initially talking with, with a client and they come to us and they say, hey, you know, we um, have this idea. And I, as just, you know, I have my own personal taste and I have things that I think will work, but I'm not as close to the project as they are. It's, it's quite possible that I will say, you know, I don't know if this project is going to really resonate with people. And then they convince me otherwise. And it's kind of easy in some cases, really easy to convince me otherwise. If you've got an email list, if you've got another game in that series that funded already, or, it, you know, you know, it just, it, it's, I've been proven wrong on more than one occasion. And so we'll let games in that we aren't 100% sure about. I mean, if we think a game, I mean, there's a point that it's like, okay, your game doesn't have art. We just can't take this one. But, you know, sometimes people can really convince us that that they should take or that we should take their product. And then we launch and we actually see what happens, right? Yes. Yeah, sometimes it's surprising. Sometimes projects you think will you know fund and do very well they barely fund and then other projects where you think oh, i'm not sure this is going to fund they fund with ease you go okay that's a surprise so even we can get some curve curve pulls yeah so let's let's dive into these these numbers so if you want to talk about the 
the columns, like what numbers did you look for? Yeah. So the first thing I looked at was the, the pledges. So most projects have a low pledge of some degree. This could be a print and play. It could be an entry level pledge, a mid pledge, and then a, a high pledge. Uh, some of them only have two. So I, I looked at them and so some of them might only have a low pledge and a mid middle pledge. Some might have a middle pledge and a high pledge. So I wanted to work out where were most people jumping in within and these projects. Just to clarify, like the $1 backer level, like for example, deliverance is a project that's listed on here. We, you, you didn't, con uh, that's not the low pledge. Is no, it? no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't include the tips, okay. um, which actually in some projects were quite substantial. Uh, so I would recommend having a $1 pledge because it could sort of cover some of your Kickstarter processing fees. Some of them were quite substantial, but no, I didn't, I, I basically, the, the pledge where you got something. So the lowest pledge where you actually got something, whether it was a, a digital download or a physical copy of the game. Uh, I looked at that and usually you can tell because there would be a spike, you know, this one got more backers. So I know that that's the low, low pledge because it's the one with the highest pledges, which actually got something. So when we break this on average, we broke this down. Now just real quick, not to detract you, but the high pledge, I was curious about the high pledge is the high pledge ever so it's never like a retail thing but is it like you know in deliverance there's that archangel investor pledge which was like fifteen hundred dollars that's not the pledge level that you're using if if you had an ability to no, use another yeah one, right? yeah because those were usually quite small like you're talking about two percent three percent of all backers who, who went for those so i didn't include that either so i'm also limiting the high pledge to like something like the all-in or the deluxe version it, it would have been, so if, I think for deliverance, the, the high pledge was the all in. Mm -hmm. So it was basically everything. And then the mid pledge was like the deluxe. And then you had like a, an entry standard pledge, which was the low pledge. So that's how I, I tailored your campaign, which is uh, in this list of, of 10. Cool. So what was interesting was that the low pledge was on average, one of the lowest option that people went for It's 16% of all backers on average went for the low pledge. The mid pledge was the highest at 31%. And then the high pledge was the, the second highest at 26%. So what we can deduce from this is that when you're creating your pledges, you need to be thinking of your middle pledge and your high pledge. Those are going to be the ones where most people are going to jump in on. But you also want to have, I think you, you also need to have a low pledge so that people can contextualize the mid and high pledges. But just know that most people are going to go for your middle pledge. So you want to make sure that that's really solid. And then you have the, the high pledge. Now, Andrew, um, when I was first describing this to you, you had a, a good sort of breakdown of what those low, mid, and high pledges should be. Do you want to maybe just explain that? The uh, first thing you know, the, you'll notice if you if you really paying attention, sixteen percent for the low pledge average, thirty one percent for the mid pledge average, and twenty six percent for the high pledge average um, is not does not add up to one hundred percent. So we you know, factor in those, uh, like elimination of other pledge tiers, like the $1 backers, the premium special, get your name in the game or whatever, get your likeness in the game type pledges and whatnot. And, uh, so we're, when Sean's pulling this data, he's actually pulling it from the back end of campaigns that we have access to. And Kickstarter has the breakdown of each pledge tier at, you know, which totals hundred percent and we're pulling down or pulling out some of that information. And uh, yes. So what I was told before we would get, uh, you know, before we got started was that about uh, 10 to 
of your backers are going to go for your low pledge. You'll have around 30% uh, go for your mid level, like the deluxe edition or whatever. And then you'll have like 25% of people go for the, you know, all in or the higher tier pledge. Um, and so there, there are two things that come to mind. The first one is customer logic. So the way that a Kickstarter backer behaves is not unlike the way that a, a rational consumer behaves when faced with a purchase elsewhere. Uh, for example, you look at cars. When um, when somebody wants to purchase a car, they'll go to a lot and you know maybe maybe you'll have an idea of cars you wanted beforehand, and you go to a a particular you know a Toyota dealership or a a BMW dealership, and you know they give you options. Oftentimes, they will narrow options down to in in threes for you. So, uh, using BMW for example, you have the most popular BMW cars are the BMW 3 Series, the BMW 5 Series, and the BMW 7 Series. They do have other cars like the M6, which is very expensive and a nice, really epic sports car. And if you want to kill yourself at 150 miles an hour, uh, that's a really great way to do it. And they have cheaper cars. They have SUVs. They've got you know other options. But the one they sell most of would be the 3, 5, or 7 Series. And if you look at the three series, it, you know, it's more affordable. It, uh, it does look nice. It's got some luxury in it. The five series is a good price for a great car. And then the seven series is you get a little bit more luxury for a lot more price. And, you know, if you can actually look at certain cars like Toyota and Lexus are owned by the same conglomerate, I believe. The Lexus 3 Series and the Toyota, oh, I can't remember, the Toyota Corolla or something like that. They're built on the exact same chassis, but a Lexus costs more than a Toyota by ten dollars to $15,000. The, the idea is that the, the value is perceived. It's not actual value. So looking at your low, mid, and high tiers, when you know a customer looks at the low, middle, or expensive, you know the cheap one the middle of the road one or the expensive one. The middle of the road one is the one that you want customers to pick. That's the one that you want to try to incentivize customers to pick. It's the greatest value for the money. It's perceived that way. The middle option, you get more value than the cheap option. It's a little more expensive, but not nearly as expensive as the high option. And this is a calculation that a rational consumer does in their head. So, Certain consumers are going to say, I value um, more luxury the most. So the price is less important to those people. They will pick your all-in um, or the more, more expensive edition more, more, more often, if you can justify the value, right? Then some customers will say, I value, you know, I, I don't make um, a, an excellent living wage. I'm going to value my wallet over, you know, getting all of the quality that I could I just want to get like the entry level thing. Those people are going to go for the low pledge. And really what you end up with is this spread. Like we have 16% on the low, 31% on the mid and 26% on the high. And so you can see just by these numbers, you've got the mid and the high are it's weighted 
heavily toward the, the high compared to the low. So Kickstarter backers, they have either a little bit more disposable income that they're willing to devote toward Kickstarter stuff, or maybe just a little bit more disposable income overall, right? Yeah. So I think the key takeaways there is that the the low pledge is basically your your back your, the cheapest you can go. The middle pledge is your best value, and then the high pledge is your luxury pledge. It's the most expensive and has has the bells and whistles, so to speak. So that's sort of how you end up structure things. You you really need three options. Like you need to give me three clear options: the one dollar pledge, and then the fifteen hundred dollar get your likeness done by our artist in a prototype way before everybody else. Those we can remove from the equation. We're talking about the the value proposition that you give for the low, middle, and high pledges. I think there are a couple of elements of these that are really important. Number one is you need to be able to justify what it is that they are, like in in just in words, without having to be like, oh, this is the base game, that's the deluxe game, this is the all-in. You need to be able to say the base game pledge level is the low entry point. I'm making it as cheap as possible for somebody interested to get into the, the game. Then the deluxe edition is like, this is the awesome version with, this is the way I justified it, all gameplay content. Some other, other campaigns will justify with, you get the expansion in this tier. So if you want the base game, go for that one. You want the expansion, you go for this one. And then the high pledge, is, you know, base game expansion and the deluxe edition components or the metal coins, the neoprene mats, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. So for me in deliverance, I justified by saying the base game is the low entry price point. The deluxe edition, my next pledge level is all gameplay content. So if somebody was interested in all the gameplay, that's the, that's the pledge level for them. Then if they want all in, that's going to be all the gameplay content plus all of the extra cosmetic upgrades. So, you know, people that wanted metal coins, acrylic standees, neoprene mats, and things like that, they could, they could go all in. And, um, and for me, you know, just more of an aside because it's not what our conversation is, is meant to be about right now, but you know, a lot of what I did in my campaign was all about justifying why the higher tiers were worth the value to the backer. And, um, you know, my, my personal numbers, I'm seeing, you know, I'm, um, I think I, the deliverance campaign is among the lowest, uh, low pledge backers at 4%, which is a quarter of what the average is. And then my mid pledge and high pledge are at 37 and 35% respectively. And, uh, which is much higher than the average. So, uh, you know, that was, kind of the fruit of, fruit of that labor, right? I think one thing I noticed with your campaign, it was very clear which ones were which. You know, some sometimes backers or sometimes creators, they they label their uh, pledge tiers thematically, which might be cool, but as like a, as someone jumping into a game, I have no idea what that is. So they'd be like the lieutenant pledge and like the grand marshal pledge. And like, I don't know what that <laughs> is. You know, it's, better, it's actually better to call it what it actually is. This is the standard pledge. This is the deluxe pledge, and this is the all-in pledge. I think that's how you labeled yours. You know exactly what it is. You have a, an, an idea of what it is. Most had the $1 pledge, the, the three pledge tiers, and then like some type of Uber, you know, get your name on the box type of thing, pledge. Yeah. And 
you want to limit it, limit it to that. There's actually a campaign um, in this list that only had two. It only had a mid pledge and a high pledge. Uh, sorry, a mid pledge and a, and a low pledge. And uh, that did very well. It was two options. And then it had a, re had a retail pledge and the $1 pledge. But basically everyone, everyone went for the, you know, the, the mid pledge. So that's something to, that's something to keep in mind as well, is that you want to try to keep this simple and clear. Yep. And that's where I think sometimes people go wrong when they have, you know, five different options. They had the low pledge, the three mid pledges, and then the high all in pledge. You confuse people. It's not quite so easy to understand. And the problem is if you make your backer think, then they are going to be less likely to actually buy stuff. So the more I have to think when buying something, the less often I'm going to actually buy it, the more my own thoughts are, I'm, I'm going to say, oh, well, I have to think more about this before I move forward. And then I may not move forward at all, you know, um, just because not, not because I decide I use my rational thought to decide that I don't want to go for this, but more like I just, there are other things that I, I'm thinking about. I'm watching that Netflix documentary or whatever, and I forget you exist. So your opportunity to convert somebody is oftentimes dependent on how clear you can be in your pledge tiers and things like that. And um, again, you know, one of the ways that you can mess it up is to have more than one option in each of these low, mid, high. So one thing that, you know, the most common area that where, where uh, board game companies do this is they'll have a pledge tier with like, you know, the base game, then uh, the base game and an expansion. But then they'll have another uh, another mid-tier, which is like the base game and a different expansion. And then they'll have the all-in, which has the base game and then both expansions and metal coins or something. But the, the idea is like, why would a backer choose one expansion over another? Especially if they don't have the information to discern which of like what. Maybe the one expansion is this enables co-op. And then, you know, co-op and solo. And then the other expansion is like, this is more gameplay content. It's like, why would I as a backer not want more gameplay content? You know, if I wanted the stuff, I should be able to get the stuff, right? You should probably have three pledge tiers, find a way to mix both expansions into one of those pledge tiers and just get rid of the, you know, just make it easier to, to understand, you know, and. We'll, we'll go into pricing as well, you know, for your tiers, but, uh, you know, for your pledge tiers, but um, just clarity is so important here. It's also very easy to do if you're thinking about it ahead of time. You've got three pledge tiers and you have to squish, you know, and, and this does not factor in the retail pledge, the $1 pledge. And then if you wanted to do some sort of fancy, very expensive pledge that is like a premium and limited availability. It's not factoring in those. It's factoring in like the main things. I think that, you know, sometimes having one option is better. You know, it's like, if you want the thing, here it is. I just think that sometimes people are missing out on the opportunity to upsell. You know, when you're, you're missing the pledge tier with all your cosmetic upgrades, you know, you could, you could make more money that, that way. So uh, anyway. So let's jump into the average pledge amount. And this is interesting. So most of these games in our list that we're, comparing are sort of big box games i think there's one card game in this list and then there's one sort of abstract game but most of them will be you know just standard big box board game 
So that's going to impact the prices and affect the averages. So you might have to contextualize this for your project. So the average pledge amount, uh, so this is uh, per backer, average pledge amount. Um, now, obviously, you're going to have, you need to also factor in the fact that there will be people pledging $1,500, and that's going to also increase the the pledge. And also, there's going to be people backing at $1, so that's going to um, affect it. So again, this number's ballpark, but I think it will, it will help you. So the average pledge amount was $82. So you want to be around that area, uh, probably a bit lower, I imagine, uh, just uh, to be to be on the safe side, uh, but probably eight, around $82, including your shipping, because I think people are backing, probably not really thinking about shipping at, at the time. So you want to be at that sweet spot. Yeah, I, I tend to find that when people are looking at prices, this is actually one of the reasons that a pledge manager is so important is because you do want to separate the shipping out from the actual amount that they're going to pay so that you can charge them that amount later. Uh, deliverance, uh, you know, my mid-tier pledge is $89 and the shipping amount was not charged at the time of the Kickstarter, but it's charged later in the pledge manager. And that is... If they commit to buying, you know, from a from a business perspective, if they commit to buying the actual product, they're sh they're not going to mind paying for shipping later. Th they might complain and and other things like that. Um, it's really common, you know. People never like to pay for shipping, but they they will. You know, they're not going to cancel their pledge because you made them pay, you know, fifteen dollars or whatever it was in shipping. As long as the shipping price is reasonable, as long as you did your best to estimate what it would be beforehand. So that there's no true shock. I mean, now if you say you're, you know, if you say it's going to be 20 bucks shipping to the U.S. and you know you end up charging me 23 dollars in the pledge manager, I'm not going to complain about that because that's that's okay. It's what it is, right? And you know, sh everybody has this understanding that shipping could be a variable and that it's an ex expectation that they'll be paying for it. But the the average pledge. It's very interesting, you know, here because I, I, I tend to find people norm, you know, if you go into a store, anything that's $20 or more requires thought to purchase. If it's $19, it requires no thought. If they want it, they're buying it. And that's why you see a lot of cheap items up in front uh, near cash registers and on, you know, on the end cap of aisles, you see end cap aisle items are going to typically be cheaper and they're going to move, you know, the volume. Like if you go to your board game shop and you see star realms, they probably sell a lot of star realms and they put it on, you know, in a, in a prominent place because it's less than $20. Now I, I find I'm, I'm kind of having this debate because it used to be $49 and under was a, another huge benchmark. And I think this still is true for shopping in a store. If you have a product that's $50 or more, it's going to take more thought to, to buy or more consideration, maybe more preparation to actually buy. If your product is $49, there's just this magic benchmark. And I'm kind of feeling like that number is $59 on Kickstarter, not $49, especially because people are getting used to you know, price increases and other things like that. I think $59 is the new $49. And then I think that the next major benchmark is $99. Anything over 99, it, it could be 500. It could be, you know, 150. It's going to be kind of in the same ballpark. It's like if I buy the $150 item, I can no longer buy the other items at this, 
you know, at this price tier. Whereas if I buy the $150 item, I can still probably afford the $59. And that's just kind of how backers think. I find that $82 average pledge to be very interesting. So the number is a little higher than I thought it would be. Yeah, and I suppose you just have to take with a grain of salt because that is, as I said before, being impacted by your higher pledges and then your lower pledges as well. So when it comes to the number of backers, now the in our list of 10 here, the lowest we have is just over 400. And the highest we have is nearly 5,000. So there's quite a big discrepancy between these numbers. But the average of all these 10 projects, the number of backers was 1,655. So this might help you if when you when you take in that number, 1,655, and you account for the low, mid, and high pledges, you might be able to start working out how much uh, income you could po possibly generate with your email list and, and, and your following. Now, also know that out of this 1,655, a lot of these would be, again, those one dollar uh, pledges that they they can they count as backers. So if you have you know two hundred people who are jumping in at the the one dollar pledge, that's that's counting in this list. So you have to sort of account for that as well. So again, these numbers are ballpark, but they might start help. They might start help. They might help you figure out where you are on the path of funding. We do have an episode we include in the show notes where we talk about the referral metrics, and we basically came to a conclusion after studying our, our clients was that you can assume a 10% conversion rate. Obviously, sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower, but 10% is a, a, probably a safe conversion rate of your email list to assume. And then for every six backers you bring in, Kickstarter will sort of organically find four on their platform. So using those metrics with all this data, you could probably start piecing together how much money you could potentially raise if you were to launch your Kickstarter or GameFound project using all these data points. Yeah. You know, one thing I also find very interesting about these backer accounts. So first of all, the dollar backer, don't discount the dollar backer. If, if you're thinking about, oh, you know, like for example, deliverance, because it's just so, you know, secondhand to know the numbers. I have almost 700 $1 backers that jumped in on deliverance. The reason that they did that was because they wanted access to the pledge manager and, you know, some of them were just not intent on buying the game, but maybe they knew me personally from like a business networking thing or uh, show some support. You know, yeah. Or just maybe that fellow designer that wanted to show some support or family friend or something like that. I had after, so our campaign ended, we raised just over $300,000, uh, 314,000. And then after the campaign ended, we opened our pledge manager we had almost 400 of those backers that were at the $1 level upgrade their pledge to a low, mid, or high. So it was really huge. We, we basically have made almost $100,000 more in the pledge manager, which is um, you know over or about 30% of what we raised in the actual campaign. And that's just so far, I, I, that number will go up. So I thought that was really interesting, You know, just something to keep in mind. Those people who back at that level, they help cover some of the the processing fees of Stripe and Kickstarter. So it can offset those charges by you know, those people who kindly donated uh, just to basically show support. So I think it is something worth including in your project. So next up, we looked at the referrals, specifically the referrals that came through our advertising efforts. So these would be direct sales. So someone saw the ad on Facebook and they backed in that session. That's basically 
how the, the tracking works. So we discovered on average, and this is interesting because I think it was a lot lower than we were expecting, but on average, the the amount of backers through live ads is 32, which isn't a great deal uh, of backers. So 32 backers. What I did notice though, and I think this will help you contextualize, a lot of people think that the live ads are going to carry their campaign. They're not. They're not going to carry a campaign. They're a supplement. Pre-marketing is all about that. Pre-marketing. It's all pre-marketing. Because with even when I was going through and I was tallying this all, all up, I could see a, a referral code for emails because some of our clients also hired us to send out emails. And those, e- <laughs> those emails that we sent out to the list that we got through pre-marketing were backing. And you're getting more backers through those emails than the live ads. So it is all about pre-marketing. The live ads are really a supplement but that being said, these only record the conversions that came directly through the ads. It's not tracking indirect conversions. So for instance, we have one project here that got eight backers, which was a huge surprise because their ads were crushing it. They had super high click-through rate, they had great engagement, uh, had great conversion rates from the landing page, but, but then they were making conversions. But how, however, when I looked- It didn't at, seem like it at least, right? It didn't seem like it. However, when I looked at the- at the dashboard, the referrals, that particular project had a huge number of direct referrals and search referrals. So search, they're searching for it on Kickstarter where they're hearing about it from somewhere. It's probably through the ads and direct, maybe the referral code is being wiped clean uh, depending on their browser um, that, that could possibly be happening. This is actually quite common, you know, because of the iOS 14 update, anybody with an Apple phone has privacy settings enabled by default. So what this means, actually, this had a dramatic effect on the on Facebook advertising, the, the ability to actually track and measure referrals from Facebook ads was impacted severely on Apple devices that were, you know, everybody that has an Apple device, oftentimes they have the, the latest software you know, uh, so they download the latest software so that it's protected as much as it can be or whatever. And by default, their tracking is hidden. Um, any tracking is hidden. So Google Analytics won't track them. Kickstarter's referral tags won't track them. Facebook's referral metrics won't tra- won't track them. So the Facebook pixel. And so it, it tends to get a little random and a little dicey, you know, when trying to figure out, are these referral codes actually working? But I think the overall point here is not not to think of your live ads as the thing which is going to carry your campaign. It's a supplement mm-hmm. to it. Some some clients who don't fund, they, they think that if they throw enough money at ads, they will fund. You won't fund. If you don't fund right. you know, the first 48 hours, it doesn't matter how much money you throw during your ads. You're just not going to fund. Getting conversions on projects which have not funded is incredibly challenging and incredibly expensive. So with some of our clients, if they don't fund the first 48 hours, we would just turn off the ads. We recommend, hey, turn off the ads, um, hustle organically. You might be able to push yourself over the edge and then we can turn them back on. Or you might want to save your money for the last 48 hour push. But you know, usually they cancel before then. So just keep that all in mind that your ads are significantly less effective during the live campaign. So the average ad spend, uh, and mostly these are three-day campaigns, uh, was $1,500, 50 bucks a day, which isn't a, isn't a huge amount of, of money, relatively speaking. So 
uh, that's on average. So some sometimes that's lower. So keep keep that in mind that there's other companies which will probably spend a lot more money and would probably get you more backers, but we don't believe it's going to be as fruitful for you doing it that way. Uh, we prefer to be conservative, get some backers, and then uh, in the pledge manager, try and reach people there as well. This is the metric that I actually disagree with from what it presents. So we're looking at an average return on ad spend of like 2.5 or 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 so, um, which is okay, especially if you're looking to build and you know continue momentum and that kind of thing. However, I probably should mention as I, well, all of these apart from two were first time creators. So most of these projects are our first time now coming with an existing audience. Right. And and there's no intellectual property where people are like, oh, you know, like we're not factoring in Skyrim into this one and other things like that. Like if you have an intellectual property, your numbers are going to be different and that sort of thing. So we wanted to make it something that was a little bit more relevant to like the, the average person rather than the one with like the Lord of the Rings license, you know? So, and I, I kind of put my money where my mouth was during my own campaign. So this was my hypothesis is that Kickstarter hides referral metrics even before the iOS 14 update. In fact, I think my campaign launched like right after the iOS 14 update happened. You know, all the the metric, this was over the summer of 21 and um, the, you know, Kickstarter, they, they kind of, they kind of try, I think, to take a little bit of credit for themselves where the actual source of the pledge was not directly related to Kickstarter at all. I have a, a, a story, you know, and this is, I think this is a really important line of reasoning. If you'll follow me, this adventure. So I had a client that was not a board game, not a Kickstarter, nothing like that. We spent anywhere from ten dollars to $60,000 a month in advertising on Google. So this was all like an ads as seen on TV product that, you know, was popular with people that were age 72 on average uh, that were hard of hearing. So what we would do is we would spend a lot of money and we would get sales like crazy. So it would cost us anywhere from $4 to $20 to make a sale between 60 and 150 or it was like a $199 was like the most expensive thing. And they had this really fancy system that, you know, if somebody bought the $60 product, they would upsell them over half of the time to the $130 product. It was really amazing. So that's, they have this call center and all of this sophisticated stuff. So they were spending crazy amounts of money on Google ads and we were making crazy amounts of money. However, the source of the interest. So I was actually targeting, my goal was to dominate the brand, the brand's name. So there were, there were other competitors, uh, big ones like Walmart and, and Costco and Target and you name it, that were trying to compete for the same keywords, Amazon. And it was my job to make sure that we dominated for the brand's brand name. And uh, that's what we spent, you know, $60,000 on or whatever. We would spend, you know, $40,000 over Black Friday weekend. It was it was crazy. Um, everybody's enjoying their Thanksgiving turkey. And here I am like 
hiding in a corner looking at ads and um it's not not really fun but it but it worked right so we would make a lot of money but where were the where was the interest being driven from it was not the ads because it couldn't be the ads because people are searching for the brand's name it has mm-hmm. to be some other methodology and i'm doing my job by making sure that they're getting sales but where is the actual interest driven it can't be Google ads. People have to be figuring out oh, the brand name some other way. So the method that they used to get the um, the products in front of the right people. And number one, you know, 72 year olds are not really super comfortable using Google. Like they would rather open up the yellow pages or ask their kids to use Google. Right. And um, this is probably like, I want to say, you know, five, seven years ago. So the actual interest was driven by newspaper or like articles in magazines like Parade and, and other things that, that have an older demographic. That's where the actual discovery was happening, where somebody was like, oh, this is a really interesting thing for a, pro- for a problem that I have, maybe an interesting solution for a problem that I have. That I, and then they would Google it. They would Google the product's name. And that's why, or that's when I would be able to actually capture those leads. So uh, sometimes the leads would be more expensive. And that was because they didn't have any articles drop in a magazine for a while. And then all of a sudden, a big article would drop in a huge magazine. And then the ads would be extremely inexpensive. It'd be $4 to convert somebody, you know, again, to buy a $60 product or more. And so the actual, like, where is the actual first source of interest that I think there's a lot of value in that, in, in knowing that. So for the vast majority of our clients, the very first time that a client will see your product is in the Facebook ad. So I find the numbers that I was looking at, like during my live campaign, it was, it was crazy. You know, I had, I had 30 backers a day, 20 cancellations a day, and it would show net 10 backers, right? It's like, wow, you know, that that seems like a lot of cancellations and a lot of backers. And it, if you look at the numbers, it's like, oh, you got 10 more backers today, but you actually got 30 more backers and 20, 20 people canceled, you know? We had all sorts of crazy games like The Witcher and whatnot that kind of competed for the same interest. And I noticed that when I reduced my spend, the number of cancellations would drop just like slightly and the number of backers would drop significantly. So there were some days where, you know, we, we eventually we started hammering the ads. I started spending, you know, 150 bucks a day on ads and the, the amount of sales that we made just astronomically jumped and the amount of engagement that we had astronomically jumped and the amount of searches where you know, Kickstarter using its own metric, it will say, oh, they searched on our platform for Deliverance, the game of spiritual warfare. And yeah, like that's a thing that they're going to search for without having known about it from some other source, right? And so the pre-marketing is very important to that, but also the actual Facebook ad, a lot of the time is the very first touch that somebody will have with your product. And that is the thing that motivates them to go seek information which again is why we send people to the landing page uh, because that's where they can get information before you know getting ready to, to actually buy. And 
So I think, you know, this is, this is not a hard and fast rule, but this is something that I've decided for my own campaigns. Any numbers that I see from Facebook ads, you know, like for example, we spent $4,400 and we made just over $12,000 on the, on the deliverance campaign. It's just, you know, around, uh, let's say like 2.6 or, or something like that. I'm just kind of, you know, doing this math really quick in my head. I would probably at least double the amount of gross ad, like the amount that we made for per back, for backers and that kind of thing, just based on the amount that we were actually able to record. It just doesn't really line up with the amount of engagement and excitement and, and other things like that. So that's my soapbox. I, you know, just as a marketer that also has a lot of firsthand experience here, that's kind of just what I'm feeling is that live ads are more valuable than they than they would say and yet they're not nearly as valuable as pre-marketing yeah yeah i would agree with that sentiment certainly so yeah with that being said you probably want to factor in a budget of about $1500 for your ad spend during your live campaign and you're sort of t- th- talking again roughly about $55 on average per backer from your live ads so mm-hmm. that might not be too profitable if your game is around that price so yeah yeah <laughs> it's something to keep in I mind we that... have one we have one project here that's a little high um in the yeah. uh, cost per backer like if i were to you know delete that one it drops to 45 yeah it drops down to 45 so yeah that, but that... it's still you know a lot per backer yeah. and then if you do the uh the andrew lowen thing of doubling your your value then it would still be I mean, from 55, it drops to $27 a backer. Like if we double the value, um, you know, of, uh, or double the amount of backers, it's still a lot. Yeah. Does it make sense for a $30 game? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you want to be careful with your live ads for sure. And, you know, one other thing I'll mention is that scaling ads, if you scale, if, if you're doing ads at like five bucks a day or 10 bucks a day, you're not really going to have a lot of these problems. Um, you're not going to get a ton of backers, you know, because you're not really spending much money, but it's going to be much more profitable where it becomes a challenge is when you're trying to scale and spend 50 bucks a day, hundred dollars a day, um, to really get backers. That's where you're going to encounter these, these types of numbers. You know, I think, I mean, was, uh, like 50 bucks a day in ad spend was our average. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And we obviously, we, we push the ad spend at the beginning, at the end. So means mm-hmm. the campaign is going to be lower than 50. So, yeah. I mean, I hope, I hope that these numbers and all of this feedback was valuable. You know, we just try, we try to be real. We try not to, you know, give away our client information without asking. Um, so whenever we're talking about information like this, it's, we try to keep our clients' names uh, private and the actual amounts that they spent and whatnot. But we base this on real data that we're gathering from our client campaigns and sharing them with you. So if you like what it is that you heard, if you found it valuable, um, please rate us on on like the local podcast network. It really does help, um, makes a big difference and, you know, to the amount of people that get to see this information. It would really help us if you find this valuable that you would um, share that a podcast review is an excellent place to do that. If you have any questions as far as, you know, maybe for your own Kickstarter campaign, 
you can go to uh, either nextlevelweb.com slash Kickstarter, or you can go to crowdfundingnerds.com and we have all sorts of uh, resources there, but you, you're welcome to, you know, get a consultation from us. First consultation's free. And of course, you're not obligated to move forward with any sort of services, but it's going to probably really help you prepare for your, uh, your next launch. So I love board games and I know Sean does too. And uh, we love to see creators succeed. So if that's you, then we'll we see love you. Chat. Too. <laughs> yeah.